Welcome to episode 10 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we're discussing criminal investigations. Forensic psychologists can contribute a great deal to criminal investigations. A major way is through the identification of suspects. They can apply psychological principles and analyses to a specific crime as a way of gathering information to help them narrow down the list of possible suspects. They can do this through interviews or interrogations, obtaining confessions, and structuring lineups for identification. They can also accumulate psychological and personality data from past crimes and apply that information to help categorize suspects, motives, and modus operandi to the present investigation. We'll focus today on the method of psychological profiling. It is, however, a controversial method of suspect description and identification. When examining a crime scene, there are three basic types of offender behavior that are observable. Modus operandi, signature, and ritual. Modus operandi, or MO for short, is the functional components necessary for an offender to successfully commit their crime. Examples can include where the crime was committed, the victim characteristics, method used to gain trust of the victim or gain access to the victim, or the tools used to commit the crime. Generally speaking, the MO is considered fairly constant, and it's used by investigators in a lot of cases to link them. However, MOs aren't necessarily always constant. Sometimes they change. As criminals gain more experience in their crime of choice, they often refine their MO to reduce the risk of getting caught. For example, the Golden State Killer. He started out as the Visalia Ransacker, as we now know. He would break into people's homes, go through their things when they weren't home. He escalated to rape as the East Area Rapist, and he refined his MO throughout this time. His mode of entry became open sliding glass doors. He went through a period of figuring out the best way to restrain his victims so that they wouldn't call for help. Over time, he found that placing dishes on their backs would prevent them from moving long after he was gone. He found this tactic especially useful when he started targeting homes with more than one person at home. He would also choose houses with tall fences so neighbors wouldn't see him come or go. By the time his crimes escalated to murder, as the Golden State Killer, he had found effective ways of committing his crimes without being detected. Many criminals use trial and error when choosing a method of control over their victims. They will usually abandon methods that are not as effective until they find one that best suits their needs. They have to adapt to changing circumstances at each crime scene to continue to evade capture. In a lot of cases, MO may be too broad to link specific cases together. You may end up lumping other crimes that fit those characteristics into your pool that have nothing to do with the case you're pursuing. That's where identifying signatures becomes really important. Signatures can be thought of as a criminal's calling card. They include behaviors that go beyond any necessary steps to successfully commit their crime. Signatures are usually used to fill some psychological need of the criminal. Signatures are considered more stable over time compared to the MO. They're seen at every crime scene in a series. They're tied very closely with the criminal's fantasies, and oftentimes they may not make sense to anyone but the criminal, 
as they are symbolic and hold some special significance only to that person. Though it is clear that all crimes in a series are committed by one person when they share a signature, even if they're not understood. It's a ritualistic behavior unique to that person. Signature could include making other people watch you commit the crime, taking pictures of your victims, or taking personal items from the victim. Sometimes it's easy to confuse MO and signature. An example can be taken from the Golden State Killer case. His MO includes the way in which he restrained his victims, having them tie up their feet and hands, and then placing dishes on their back when he left so they wouldn't call the police until he was long gone. Those were necessary procedural aspects of his crime so that he could gain control and then escape undetected. Signatures of the Golden State Killer included him taking personal objects from his victims and spending a lot of time in a victim's home after the crime, even eating their food. Over time, he also used the same phrases verbatim to control or direct his victims as if he were reading from a script, which would be considered a verbal signature. At the end of the day, every crime has an MO, but not all crimes have signatures. The ritual describes behaviors that are also psychologically motivated to fulfill the needs of the criminal and are also not necessary to successfully commit their crimes. In this way, rituals are similar to signatures. Rituals are considered repetitive acts at the crime scene and, unlike signatures, they may not occur in every instance. For example, if there's a time constraint or the criminal is interrupted, the entire ritual may not be followed through. Some of these ritualistic behaviors may be confused with MO at a crime scene because they can become part of the necessary steps to commit the crime. In this case, it's more about identifying those repetitive behaviors. They're done in a very ritualistic manner, while also serving as part of the criminal's MO. Examples of rituals include the type or style of binding used on a victim, posing victims, or leaving any markings on victims or at the crime scene. Staging is another component of crime scenes that investigators have to be able to identify. Staging is a purposeful alteration of the crime scene prior to the arrival of investigators. Staging is usually done as a means to conceal some aspect of the crime. For example, a perpetrator may want to hide the fact that they had a personal relationship with the victim or to protect the victim or victim's family. Keeping these concepts in mind, I want to move on to the techniques of criminal profiling. Criminal profiling in general is a technique that's used to analyze behavioral patterns at a crime scene or series of crimes. It's used to construct an outline of the most probable offender. This outline includes characteristics thought to represent the offender, including age, sex, and relationship status. There are two types of profiling scientific and non-scientific. Non-scientific profiling relies on intuition, experience, and professional judgment, much like clinical variables used to predict dangerousness that we discussed back in episode two. Scientific profiling relies on empirical and scientific methodology, much like actuarial variables. There are a handful of different non-scientific models that were developed in the 80s and 90s. These include the Douglas, Resler, Burgess, and Hartman model, the Holmes and Holmes model, the Turco model, and the Turvey model. 
They're all based on intuitive analyses of crime scene evidence. Proponents of these models believe that only certain people have a gift of profiling, that it's some innate ability that you're born with that you couldn't possibly learn how to do. Sorry if my bias is showing. They take evidence from crime scenes and fit it to the typologies we talked about a couple weeks ago. The first two models, the Douglas and colleagues and the Holmes and Holmes, focus more on victim profiling. They home in on the people chosen as victims, including physical traits, relationship status, lifestyle, education, and medical history, along with a number of other aspects of the victims. They also divide serial killers into the typologies we talked about in episode 8. The Turco model uses psychoanalytic principles that focus on personality disorder attributes of the killer. This model believes that killers project their own personality and developmental experiences onto the crime scenes, making it possible for profilers to uncover details about the killer from details at the scene of the crime. The Turvey model centers around MO and signature behaviors, like we discussed earlier. Now, on to the scientific models. The Cantor model is the pinnacle of scientific models. This model prioritizes linking behaviors, personalities, and other characteristics to the commission of the crime. There's even a mathematical equation associated with this model. It's pretty legit. There has to exist a reliable relationship between actions and offender characteristics for there to be any empirically-based model of profiling. In that case, some psychological variations between crimes are related to differences in the people who commit them. There are two hypotheses that assist profilers in using this model correctly to make inferences about the offender. The offender consistency hypothesis assumes there are similarities between the actions taken to commit the crime across multiple occasions. And those similarities can be attributed to offender-specific characteristics rather than just situational factors about where the crime was committed. The other hypothesis is the offender-specificity hypothesis, which assumes that the crimes committed by an offender are specific to the situation as a result of multiple factors including impulsiveness, preparedness, and personality facets. Now, just because we have a scientific model of profiling doesn't mean there's empirical evidence that it works. In fact, there's not a whole lot of profiling that has been scientifically peer-reviewed. For profiling to be considered scientific, it has to be accurate, valid, reliable, comprehensive, and unaffected by anecdotal evidence or subjective investigative experience. So basically all the things that non-scientific models are based on. The model needs to be based on empirical research in areas including crime scene evidence and reconstruction, personality, and behavior. And there has to be the possibility of generating predictions about offender behavior that can assist law enforcement in identifying and apprehending offenders. Despite the lack of scientific support, profiling is still wildly popular. It may work, just not at the level most profilers claim. There are cases where it makes a big difference, and it can help bring in new leads or even crack a case, but that might just be a coincidence. There are also cases where it's way off the mark, 
and derails the investigation, taking investigators down a costly rabbit hole. I'll give you some examples, good and bad, where criminal profiling was used in an effort to solve a case. Let's start by talking about cases where criminal profiling helped, or at least appeared to help, the investigation. The first example is of Canada's most prolific serial killer, Willie Picton. There were many aspects about this case that made it very difficult to solve from the get-go. Picton admitted to murdering 49 sex workers, using his meat grinder to dispose of some victims, and feeding others to the pigs on his farm. It took a few years for police to catch on to the pattern of sex workers going missing, mainly because of their profession. One detective, though, Lorimer Shenher, who had been trained in criminal profiling, decided to look into the pattern a bit more. But his superiors weren't so keen on his hypothesis that a serial killer was running loose in Vancouver, and rationalized the disappearances as characteristic of women in that profession. They assumed these women were transient and were most likely to come in and out of the community without notice. As it turned out, many of these women had strong familial and community ties, making it very unusual to the people who knew them that they would just disappear without a trace. It didn't help that no bodies had ever been found. Thankfully, Shenher didn't give up. He'd been given a tip to look into Picton in the summer of 1998, when 17 women were already missing. Picton's file revealed that he had been arrested that year for imprisoning and stabbing a sex worker, though those charges were later dropped. Shenher knew Willie was a good suspect, but it would take four more years before police searched Picton's farm. In four years, Picton was able to kill at least 14 more women. Another complication was that Picton's farm was in another jurisdiction because it was outside the city limits of Vancouver, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Vancouver Police Department had no interest in working together for years. Eventually, they did cooperate and were able to find evidence linking Picton to the murders of the missing women, many of whom were from Canada's indigenous population. They found this evidence in 2002 during a search of his property on unrelated charges. In that search, they found DNA of 33 women on his property. This case, to me, is more of an example of the failures of the system, failures in cooperation and communication and taking sex worker disappearances seriously. It helps that Shenher had completed his dissertation in criminal profiling, and maybe that gave him the sense to take the tip about Picton seriously, but I wouldn't say this case was solved because of a criminal profiler. It was solved, and should have been solved years earlier, by a good tip. The second example of profiling assisting an investigation is that of the Mad Bomber, or George Metesky. Metesky planted bombs all over New York City in the 1940s and 1950s, at least 33 of them. 22 of those bombs exploded, injuring 15 people. Police were desperate for help, so they asked psychiatrist James Brussel to develop a profile of the offender. This is one of the first uses of criminal profiling in a police investigation. 
Russell came up with a very specific profile after reviewing all of the evidence. He believed it would be a middle-aged man of Eastern European descent, living alone in Connecticut, perhaps a disgruntled former employee of Con Edison. Now, Con Edison was the city's utility company at the time. Russell also believed the offender would be wearing a double-breasted buttoned suit when he was arrested. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really specific. One month after Brussel created his profile, though, George Metesky was arrested by police. Metesky was a man in his 50s, a Polish immigrant, he was unmarried, and he lived in Waterbury, Connecticut. Oh, and better yet, he was previously employed by Con Edison. And what did he change into when he was arrested? A double-breasted, buttoned suit. Too good to be true, right? A lot of profiles end up reading kind of like horoscopes. They include just enough specific information to apply to a lot of people, but leave the rest of the details kind of open for interpretation. For example, the full profile claimed the offender would be unmarried, but perhaps living with an older female relative. There were other details included in the profile that didn't hit the mark, but many publications only highlighted what Brussel got right. If you throw enough cooked spaghetti at the wall, something's gonna stick. So clearly, I'm not convinced that Brussel was some sort of genius. Certainly many of his predictions made sense, and were good guesses based on the available evidence. Now let's talk about when profiling goes wrong. Most of the time, I think it's harmless. It may take investigators down the wrong path or not really have an impact at all. The case? DC Beltway Sniper. The case consisted of coordinated shootings in the fall of 2002 in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. The sniper murdered 10 people and wounded three others. The profile? A disgruntled fired employee, white male, full-time job, in his 20s or early 30s. Uh, at one point, they believe there might be two men acting together, driving a white van that would likely be ditched in a garage or a lake. In reality? Well, they got the two men part right, um, but one was a minor at the time. Both were black. John Muhammad was 41 and Lee Boyd Malvo was 17. They were found in a blue van and they were both unemployed drifters with no permanent ties to Maryland or the surrounding areas. This highly inaccurate profile had actually deterred the investigation and allowed the culprits to get away from the police. They were noticed a handful of times during the critical period of the investigation, and they were even stopped in their car in Baltimore. But there was little suspicion or follow-up because they didn't match the profile. Most cases with a profile generated are stumped in some way. They're looking for leads or some way to narrow down the search. Though it might be more helpful to publicize facts about the case rather than predicted characteristics of the offender. Knowing the locations of the crimes, the time frame in which they were committed, or any other defining characteristics might actually lead to more helpful leads than information about supposed race or education level. Even profiles rooted in evidence and developed using a scientific method are only, at the end of the day, 
a hypothetical picture of the offender. Thank you for listening to episode 10. Next week, we'll be talking about eyewitness testimony. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can listen at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotter, Stitcher, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find this podcast. And please hit subscribe so you can get the latest content as it is released. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.